really take public figures and turn them into fictional characters? Hello, everyone, and welcome to Season 3, Episode 19, Overall Episode 98 of the Real Spies, Real Lives podcast. This is where we talk about writing spies and writing about spies. I'm your host, espionage author P.A. Duncan. At Overall, episode 98, we're closing in on our 100th episode. I've been thinking about how to celebrate that, and I got nothing. But after this week, we still have two weeks to go, so maybe I'll get an idea. So the short answer to the question I posed above is, yes, you can. Because I write historical fiction, there are historical figures who are also public figures in my books. I'm not the only one who's done this. Almost every writer of historical fiction deals with real people who are generally referred to as public figures. So what constitutes a public figure? By definition, a public figure can be a celebrity, a politician, a social media influencer, a business leader, among others. But this person has to have a significant influence in their arena, whether it's business or politics or social media or movies or television, as to be of concern or interest to the public overall. For example, there's a lot of interest in the public figure right now of Johnny Depp and his ex-wife because of his defamation trial against her. But that could be problematic for them both. Here in the U.S., public figures rarely succeed in suing a writer who has made incorrect or harmful statements about them, unless there is proof the writer acted with actual malice toward the public figure by showing a disregard for the truth. However, the burden of proof is higher for a public figure than for someone like you or me, an ordinary Joe or Jane. For example, I could sue someone who writes, oh, she's a bad writer, but I'm not a public figure, so it wouldn't go very far. When a public figure appears in fiction, he or she may not like the portrayal of themselves, but there is a little the public figure can do, especially if there's a historical record about their words and actions. There is a difference between a reporter, for example, writing an article about a public figure 
and demonstrating a malicious disregard for the truth. And a fiction writer who takes dramatic license to make a known public figure fit better into the story. Well, this is how we can have Abraham Lincoln as a vampire slayer or the Prince of Wales fighting off terrorists in a Tom Clancy book, which is Patriot Games, by the way. The alternative is to take what's known about a public figure and create a fictional character, usually with a completely different name. I did that, for example, in my series, A Perfect Hatred, with the President of the United States and significant members of his cabinet. Now, they were all public figures, and I could have used their real names, but because I was being highly critical of the decisions they made on a particular historical event, Waco, I opted to change them all. President Bill Clinton became President Jeff Randolph. But if you read closely enough, I've woven enough of Clinton's history into that fictional character, you know exactly who I'm talking about. Now, in my series Self-Inflicted Wounds about the Balkans, I used Slobodan Milosevic's real name. Why? One, he's dead. And two, I didn't say anything about him that wasn't true. His record as a leader of the then Yugoslavia is part of history and was egregious enough I didn't have to embellish it with dramatic license. And another point is, he doesn't appear in a single scene. He actually does in one scene very briefly, but he has no dialogue. All the other references to him are from third parties. Another public figure whose name I haven't changed is Mikhail Gorbachev. He appears early on in my novel, Love, Death, as a member of an internal Soviet cabal called the Red Circle. That I completely made up. So I included an author's note to indicate that the Red Circle wasn't real, and if it were, Gorbachev had no part in it. That was dramatic license, and he will also make an appearance in an upcoming novel, one that's two or three years away, as an older and much more bitter man, which per his record and from recent interviews, he is. My portrayal of Gorbachev is somewhat sympathetic because I'm an admirer of his. I saw what he was trying to do, I understood it, and I also saw he was overwhelmed by what he started, something he didn't expect. I'll portray him accurately, but a literary device gets in the way. I can't make Gorbachev a bad guy, which many believe he is, because he's an historical figure whose efforts I admired. I can't make Milosevic a good guy, which many believe he was, because I studied his part in ethnic cleansing too much. This is a literary device called Paradigm of Self, 
Now, a paradigm is a frame of reference born of your life experience for how you see the world. Paradigm of self is how you see yourself in that world. In literary terms, it means how you see yourself and therefore how you see the world is reflected in your writing. If you've read any of Bill O'Reilly's books on historical figures, it's quite apparent he sees that person and that era of history through the lens of his conservative views. With that paradigm of self, there is no way he could write from a leftist point of view or even a centrist point of view. If he tried, he wouldn't succeed and his readers would see the lack of authenticity. Most likely, O'Reilly himself would get frustrated enough that he'd not finish. After all, you can only write what you're comfortable with. Again, I'm no public figure, except perhaps in my own paradigm, haha, but I've experienced life in such a way that I'm pretty much a cynic, especially about politics and politicians. I studied political science and I left college as a dewy-eyed optimist about how fair-minded men, and that's who it was way back then, would create a better world. And I got disabused of that fairly quickly. So I treat all politicians, whether they match my views or not, whether I like them or not, with a healthy dose of disdain. This is particularly the case in my upcoming series, Meeting the Enemy. The books in this series are about 9-11 and its aftermath. From my left-centric paradigm of self, as dark as that day 9-11 was, the reactions and actions of the then-administration in response to it were sometimes darker. I've incorporated that into the four books in that new series. So, I've changed all the names of all the public figures. Now, we have a good start on the historical record of these public figures. Much has been written about them during and since 9-11. And I've researched them and the implications of the decisions they made. But in my use of dramatic license, I made these public figures a bit more over the top, a lot darker than they appeared to be in real life. It was actually great fun and very cathartic. Fun because portraying a psychopath out for his own aggrandizement in a top position in government turned out to be remarkably prescient. But don't worry, I've written about him too. Because of my paradigm of self, I couldn't write these characters as the high-minded patriots some in the media have portrayed them to be because I didn't see those public figures they are based on that way. I have softened my opinion a bit on George W. Bush, but only a bit. But the others, eh, 
not so much. Let's face it, even if I didn't name the fictional character who is president after the public figure he's based on, again, you'd figure out who it was. I mean, the president on September 11th? You know who it is. Merely, as I'll say in my author note for that book, the words and actions of these characters are in no way representative of those public figures. I'm a fiction writer. BS is part of my repertoire. Now, will there be people who are upset about my fictional portrayals of public figures? Well, that's a given. But if I've made them think about their own paradigms, it's worth it. And now it's commercial time. My soon-to-be-released novel, Terror, is book one of Meeting the Enemy, and it turns out it's where I introduce these characters based on public figures. And you can now pre-order Terror. Yeah, using that particular noun as a book title makes for odd-sounding sentences. Anyway, Terror is available for pre-order for your Kindle or Kindle app. I'll post the link for it in the description for this episode, but if you go to Amazon and search Terror, P.A. Duncan, that should make an interesting search history, it'll pop right up for you to pre-order. That way, a second after midnight on June 25th, your ebook will magically appear, ready for you to read. This month, May, is also the book birthday month for my debut novel, A War of Deception. It seems like only yesterday I had a great book launch at a local bookstore, complete with punch and cake, and people bought books. To celebrate that, I've put the ebook of A War of Deception on sale for 99 cents all this month. This novel isn't really where it all began because it takes place approaching the end of my and Alexei's active operational careers, but it is my first published novel. And I still get all verklempt, remembering when I opened my box of author copies and saw it in book form for the first time. The link to the sale will also be in the description of this episode, or again, go to Amazon and search A War of Deception, P.A. Duncan. Commercial time, over. I've selected a reading from Terror that is an example of what I talked about earlier in the podcast. So let me set that up. This scene is based on an established event. The actual CIA director, George Tennant, did attempt to warn the Bush administration of an impending attack from al-Qaeda. But at the time, details were sketchy, and the administration chose to disregard it. While the CIA was trying to build a better case, the attack occurred. According to some scholars in some nonfiction books published since 9 11, 
the Bush administration was skeptical of the intel because it came from the Clinton administration. Some administration members even believed it was a setup to embarrass Bush. Again, what I'm about to read is a fictional portrayal of an actual event. So the dialogue spoken comes from my head and my research. Meeting the Enemy, Book One, Terror, Chapter Two, August 11th, 2001, Outside Duncan, Oklahoma. During the campaign, when Vice President Delbert Stodden urged President Gordon Arbus Jr. to buy a ranch reminiscent of President Reagan's Rancho del Cielo, it was all about the optics. Stodden thought pictures of Arbus riding on horseback over the former wheat farm would forever connect him to the deified 40th president and grant Arbus the gravitas he lacked. All that had emerged, however, and screw the media for that, was a series of shots of Arbust in a sweat-stained cambric shirt, clearing brush and tootling around the acreage in a golf cart. And the fact that Arbust was afraid of horses was now top secret. One positive outcome. Arbust focused attention on reclaiming the rundown farm went a long way in convincing the Republican base he was the good old boy, not the New England preppy he epitomized. The old farmhouse on the property was large and in need of TLC. Mrs. Arbust was taking care of redecorating the interior and a fresh coat of paint, a new roof and gutters and new shutters hid most of the exterior's flaws. Its presence, however, allowed the press secretary to perpetuate the fiction that when Arbust was in residence, the work of the American people continued seamlessly. All presidential vacations were working vacations, was the press secretary's mantra. As far as the media was concerned, all of Arbust's key advisors stayed with him in the rambling, musty structure. The Secret Service kept nosy reporters away from the mini-compound of massive, high-end RVs used by Stodden, National Security Advisor Demetra Bills, Secretary of State Malcolm Jackson, Arbus Chief of Staff Kent Wise, and others. Bills, however, found every excuse in the book to be at the farmhouse, almost the whole day, something Mrs. Arbus tolerated. Stodden worried, however, that Bill's schoolgirl crush on the president was going to be a problem in the Bible Belt. Wives there were practically trained to look the other way when a husband strayed, but not when the other woman was black. Stodden would be content to let Arbust vacation his entire presidency, if he wanted to, while Stodden ran things from the relative luxury of the White House. 
But again, the optics of Stodden being Arbus' loyal subordinate played better. Also, coming to the Oklahoma White House got Stodden away from the vice president's official residence in D.C. and from his wife. No one here nagged him about what he ate not being on his cardiac diet or that he drank too much scotch. Seven months into the Arbus presidency and the inner circle had made this trip six times. This August trip was the longest so far, scheduled for three weeks. And, so far, it had been mostly work-free. Congress was on recess, and most cabinet secretaries and cabinet-level agency directors understood only bona fide emergencies could interrupt the working vacations. But that hadn't stopped CIA Director Boyd Waller from showing up without notice, using the excuse he had something critical to discuss with Arbust. Waller was an unfortunate holdover from the Randolph administration, but he'd shown promise in adapting to his new masters. Stodden, however, would never fully trust him. Stodden knew this pop-up visit was simply Waller's way of getting face time with Arbust, something Stodden also controlled. When Waller had given Arbust his first CIA briefing after the election, Arbust had looked like a teenager picking up his prom date, wide-eyed, twitchy, and sweaty. After, Arbust had said to Stodden, Stodgy, why don't you deal with this from now on? Perfect. To keep Waller from dropping in unannounced at the White House, something he'd done with President Randolph, Stodden had rewarded the kid of a big campaign donor with a promotion of sorts, plucking the recently trained case officer from his obscure desk job at Langley and making him the CIA White House liaison. That job didn't exist on the White House personnel roster, and the kid simply got his regular CIA salary. Waller sent the daily briefings to the White House. The kid received them, reviewed them, gave them to Stodden, and fielded the few questions Stodden had. Stodden told Arbust what he needed to know, which wasn't much. Stodden dealt with everything, per Arbust's request. Someone had cranked up the window air conditioning units in the farmhouse as high as they go. Oklahoma was blazing hot in August. Stodden hoped they didn't overtax the house's ancient wiring and fuse box. Waller had to raise his voice to be heard over the grinding, whirring machines as he went over a white paper his analyst had prepared. Bin Laden determined to strike in the U.S. When Waller finally finished, Stodden opened his mouth to thank him and to have the Secret Service spirit him away, but Malcolm Jackson breached Stodden's meeting protocol and asked a question. Boyd, Jackson said, his back straight and stiff as if he were still the big general in charge. Why do you think this is coming to a head now, all of a sudden? According to our intel and recent chatter, this has been building for a number of years, Waller replied, driven by the missile attacks on bin Laden's Afghani base in 98. Also, 
it's well established bin Laden wasn't happy with the results of Ramsey Yusuf's World Trade Center bomb back in 93. There wasn't enough damage done in bin Laden's eyes, and he's vowed to strike America. The WTC is a potential target. Well, that's a leap, Stodden said. Not really, Mr. Vice President. Bin Laden is on record wanting to bring the fight to the U.S., Waller said. The Millennium Plot we foiled in 99. The plotter indicated his mission was encouraged and facilitated by a bin Laden lieutenant. And bin Laden and al-Qaeda have been known to spend months planning something, but making it look like a spontaneous sneak attack. And they don't let setbacks bother them. Jackson added. They don't, Waller agreed. They learn from their mistakes and apply what they've learned to future operations. We have Al-Qaeda members who are U.S. citizens who can too easily come and go here. We feel they, this is nothing but anecdotes and vague references, Stodden interrupted, waving his copy of the paper. It says right here, we have not been able to corroborate some of the more sensational threat reporting. Waller's lips pursed for a second or two, but his reply was measured, calm. The FBI has seen patterns of activity, as indicated in the paper, people observing and photographing federal buildings, significant landmarks, and airports. Tourists, Stodden muttered. Waller ignored him and continued, We know bin Laden wants the blind sheikh released from prison. We have his videos and interviews where he makes that point. What better way to accomplish that than, for example, hijacking an aircraft and bartering the passengers' lives for the release of the sheikh? Again, you have nothing specific, Stodden said. A string of coincidences and unsupported speculation doesn't cut it. And this is simply a briefing memo, Mr. Vice President. I have people focused on making the connections between bin Laden and a plan for a significant terrorist operation here in the U.S. using explosives and perhaps aircraft. I can have a detailed analysis and a specific action plan ready in two weeks at most. Bin Laden does nothing except make vague threats, Stodden said. Hell, the man lives in a cave, doesn't he? The videos and interviews are an echo chamber for him. All you have here in this report, again, is nothing more than vague threats and rehashed questionable media stories. Waller's lips tightened again, and he turned to Demetra Bills. Dr. Bills, at the least, let me... She gave him a dismissive wave of her hand. The vice president is right, she said. You don't have a specific threat or a timetable for any sort of operation. You have generalities here without attribution. That makes me more than dubious. Do I have your permission, Mr. President, to advise the FAA's Office of Civil Aviation Security? Waller asked, looking at Arbus. Of what? Stodden broke in. Vagaries and generalizations? No, you will not spread this around and incite panic until you have concrete proof of a specific incident. 
Mr. Vice President, by the time I get the kind of proof you're asking for, it could be too late. Well, you're Mr. Doom and Gloom Tennis, Arbus said, speaking for the first time and grinning. He used his nickname for Waller, a tennis aficionado. Waller was, if anything, stubborn. Mr. President, perhaps if you, I, and Dr. Bills could... Director Waller, Stodden interrupted yet again. I said, come back when you've got facts, not speculation. Stodden nodded to two of the Secret Service agents, and they came to stand by Waller's chair. Waller looked up, first at one, then the other. He rose and started to leave. Take the memo copies with you, Stodden said. Waller turned back. I'll leave them here, he said. After some closer study, you might change your mind. Stodden narrowed his eyes at Demetra Bills. She jumped up and gathered all the copies of the memo, put them in the eyes-only envelope Waller had used, and handed that back to the CIA director. Good day. Director Waller, Stodden said. When the president returns to D.C., we'll resume the daily briefings via the liaison. Have a good trip back. Waller's turn to give Stodden a slit-eyed stare as he slapped the envelope against his thigh. Don't worry, Director, Stodden said, his smile a smirk. You've covered your ass. Waller looked around the room, but no one made eye contact with him. He about-faced and strode away, the secret surface trailing behind him. After a few seconds of silence, Arba said, Well, too bad tennis couldn't stay. I'm going to knock down a couple of those old sheds with the mini-dozer. He would have gotten a kick out of that. After Waller's exit, the rest of the inner circle slipped from the large living room Dana Arbust had redone to look like the Oval Office. The air conditioners were laboring to no avail, and the RV's units were more efficient and quiet. Stodgy, President Arbo said. Stay a minute. Demetra Bill's exit stalled. Uh, Shall I stay, Gord, Uh, Mr. President? She asked. No, Demi, I want to speak with Stodgy, that's all. Theodore Troop Merson, Stodden's chief of staff, lingered too. God damn it! said Arbus. I'm the goddamn president of the United States. I've said twice now I want to speak to the vice president. If you can't figure out I mean alone, let me help you. Everybody but the president and the vice president get out. Once the two men were alone in the room, Arbus stood, forcing the stouter Stodden to lever his bulk from his chair. He and Arbus were about the same height but Arbus' lean runner's frame made the rotund Stodden seem massive. Look, Stodgy, Arbus began, I know you and I made a deal, but I'm the president. Tennis's report and your dismissal of it may come back to haunt us. Well, if that's the case, we'll use that to our advantage. How? Let me explain. Arbus listened, knowing Stodden used simple words on purpose, Yeah, my baby brother got the brains, Arbus thought, but he never learned how to fly F-102s like me. By the time he finished, Stodden's pasty face was slick with sweat. You think that could work? Arbus asked him. Absolutely, Stodden replied. 
Waller's briefing memo is classified. No one here can say a word about it. Your chief of staff and mine are here because they know how to keep their mouths shut. And Demi would never do anything to hurt or embarrass you. If Jackson goes off the reservation, I'll rein him in. We can ignore the memo, and there's nothing Waller can do. Nothing ties it back to us. What if he's right, Stodgy? What if bin Laden is planning to strike here? Gordon, that's next to impossible. No one would dare attack the U.S. homeland, knowing the military response we would deliver. I'm sure what Waller meant is a strike at U.S. interests elsewhere. You mean like that attack on the USS Cole or embassies or something like that? Not here? Exactly. You can't plan that type of strategic action from a cave in a third world country and without the resources of a nation state to support it. Look, if he takes out another embassy or a naval asset, we emphasize to Congress how weak the Randolph administration was, how they left us vulnerable to terrorists. That'll get us the increase in defense spending I, uh, uh, we, wanted. Of course, uh, we'll have to take some sort of retaliatory action, but no need for boots on the ground, and we'll tie Saddam Hussein to whatever attack occurs, if one occurs. Meaning we can finish what Daddy started before the liberal crybaby stopped him. Arbus grinned again, then sobered as his face clouded over. That bastard Saddam tried to have Daddy killed. So yeah, he needs to come down. All right, Stodgy. Sounds like a plan. Stod nodded and turned to go. He was almost at the door when Arbus called to him. Stodgy, next time. I'll call the meeting to a close. I am the president. Stodden turned to look at him. His eyes narrowed so much in his round face. Arbus thought he was looking at a pig. From behind clenched teeth, Stodden replied, Yes, Mr. President. The insolent tone rankled Arbus, but he didn't want Stodden pissed off at him. He smiled. Great! Now... I want to get started taking down those sheds before the afternoon storms come and make the Secret Service all antsy. When he was back in his car, driven by his driver and accompanied by his bodyguards, Boyd Waller took out a secure satellite cell phone and punched the single-digit program with a speed dial number. How did it go? A man answered, his southern accent faint but distinct. About like I told you it would. What now? A sigh, then. I'll drop some hints and hope the FBI does something. In the meantime, my people will work on digging up the details they want. The devil is always in the detail, as my pap used to say. A pause, then. Boyd? It might be time for that contingency plan. I agree. Better to have it ready to go and not need it than to need it and have to play catch-up. I'll get things moving on my end. It'll take some convincing. Before Waller could respond, the other man hung up. Of course, that other man is none other than Nelson, head of the directorate. All right, we're done for today. I think you figured out who's who from that excerpt. Again, based on what we know about the public figures, 
but embellished with dramatic license. Have a great weekend upcoming. Get out and have some fun. But remember, while you're having fun, spies are up to no good. You know what you have to do, right? Keep an eye out for spies. The proceeding is a production of Unexpected Paths Media, copyright 2022, all rights reserved. Join us next week for episode 99 of the Real Spies, Real Lives podcast. And stand with Ukraine.